Hi, I'm Dr. Marsha, and you're listening to the Self-Care Chronicle. As a licensed psychologist, I know the importance of self-care in maintaining my mental wellness. But I'm often pretty busy running around trying to help others navigate their way through life. And when my schedule gets really hectic, I struggle with self-care. The very self-care that I always recommend to other people. And that made me wonder, am I the only one? How do other mental health professionals handle their self-care? So I reached out to a bunch of my peers and asked them if they would talk to me about their experiences. Join me each week as I chat with a fellow mental health professional about stress management and self-care. Welcome to the Self-Care Chronicle. Hello, it's episode six of the Self-Care Chronicle. I'm Dr. Marsha, and today, in the final episode of 2020, I'm chatting with Dr. Latasha Russell. Dr. Tasha is a mental health clinician, author, and speaker. Her recent book, called It Ain't the Dishes, is a must-read for anyone who has ever experienced relationship challenges. Dr. Tasha has done so many amazing things that I can't cover them all in this brief intro. So after the show, go to drmarshabrown.com to check out her full bio and links to her website. Let's get right to it. And welcome, Dr. Tasha. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm very excited that we're going to get a chance to talk today. So let's just hop right into it. Can you talk a little bit about your journey into being a mental health clinician? And by that, I mean, how did you decide that you wanted to be a mental health clinician? And then how did your journey take you to your current area of expertise? Ooh. Okay, so it's interesting because when I think about the idea of me counseling, quote unquote, or providing services to alleviate pain or suffering, I think I've been doing this for years. I remember in high school, they, they said, you're going to be like the next Oprah. I literally heard this. And then, of course, in my mind, I'm like, I just want to be Tasha, but I get that they were that was a compliment, right? And the funniest part is that I've heard this probably at least, not exaggerating, maybe like 40 to 50 times you know, in my adult life by adults. And I know what they're saying is because I don't mind having difficult conversations in whatever capacity. And so I have maintained that personality of not having a problem with difficult conversations. Now, when I graduated from Spelman in 2002, I became a teacher. I was a fifth grade math teacher. Then I was a seventh grade Spanish teacher. And then lo and behold, a superintendent asked me to be a principal of her school. So I became an elementary school principal at the age of 24, and how about I hated it? You know, I was like, this is not what I love to do. So I leave that job, start working for FEMA, and I'm now doing crisis intervention work right after Hurricane Katrina hit. After this, I'm now saying to myself, this is what I wanna do, just working in crisis. I live in Houston, Texas at the time, and I start working at this boot camp for girls or young adult women, and loved it. So they were cutters, a lot of them struggle with eating disorders and a lot of unresolved childhood trauma. And I'm loving my job. And I learned at this tender age of 26 that this psychologist that worked at this boot camp, there was a young lady that literally walked out of her office because of something that bothered her. And she, this psychologist came to me, the rehab counselor that was making a whole $30,000 a year and said, 
Tasha, can you help me with, we'll call her Samantha. Can you help me and work with, help me with Samantha? She said, you know what? Thank you so much. You're the only one that can get through to these girls. At that point, I knew that this psychologist was making three times my salary, yet she was asking me to talk to her client. And it was like, I have to go back to school. This is probably what I've always wanted to do because it felt so natural. I'm like, wow, I can get paid doing what like, you know, truly I would have probably done for free. It was difficult in grad school, to be honest. I say it was as a brown clinician, I had to learn how to navigate the ivory tower. But the truth is that I didn't mind talking about white privilege. I didn't mind working in the trenches where I wanted to work with the gangbangers and the prostitutes or the battered women. Sometimes it wasn't as sexy when, you know, you weren't doing CBT with surgeons or professors, but it was like, I want to be able to help folks that are judged. And that brought me to the population that I work with now. And so now you're working with a lot of different populations, but the recurring theme seems to be marginalized people or people who are in some way discriminated against or minimized or sort of rejected. Absolutely. That's probably half of my practice. And then the other, and then working with addicts as well. I love working at rehab facilities with drug and alcohol rehabilitation facilities. But at the end of the day, I also work with just regular folks that want to talk about You know, a lot of couples that maybe have a reoccurring argument that comes up or the loss of a child and we have to talk about grief or the loss of a husband. That is definitely a specialty of mine that I didn't realize that I had until I found that talking about death was the same way I talk about life or thriving, that it wasn't intimidating for me. So I've learned that addiction and grief and couples sessions are something that I probably that would be the other 50 percent of my practice. And in your private practice, what would you say is the most stressful thing about your job? Oh, stressful. Right now, the most stress that I feel is the referrals that come in daily or weekly and how I can't see them for like another two months. And I actually feel bad. My stress level is because I have to find a way to orchestrate. Well, one, we have the first referral conversation. You know that which I give about 10 minutes and I'm hearing the crisis, which is probably when folks call, we know that, and that I can't tend to them. So I literally have to give them to my colleagues. I refer people out on a daily basis because I know that my two months out date that I'm giving you will not be sufficient for your crisis right now. And so that is probably the most stressful. Can you talk a little bit about how your practice has changed since COVID-19. And and by that, I don't just mean, you know, a flow in business. How have you had to change the delivery of your services if you've had to change it all since COVID-19? Oh, okay. So this is interesting. There's so many aspects of this job, which I love, where you can have, you know, six and seven or three and four streams of income, but doing the same job. And so I do a lot of contract work with different corporations where it's like a, it's called like a a ratio illiteracy workshop. And that's literally what I kind of call it to address a lot of things that came out in the pandemic, specifically after the George Floyd death, there were like corporations like Johnson and Johnson or like Kellogg's or General Mills and Home Depot. But it literally were like moments where it's like, oh, wow, now we have to make sure our staff are trained with diversity or trained in this level of inclusion because we don't want our corporations to kind of get in trouble with not hitting that quota. And I have to say it like that because that's what it became. 
And then I literally decided to create this whole kind of consulting work where I can go into these corporations and help them to deal with the sometimes white fragility, which is what I call it, or moments of realizing that I didn't realize what kind of society we were in and how I am a part of the problem. I'll say that. And so monthly, that's the workshop I do. I work with professional athletes and their significant others because sometimes if you have seen with the NBA and the NFL, they have, it just looks different right now. So the idea of the fans are not there or that they're having to like stay in the house because of COVID and they're not able to go out in the ways that they used to have a release or an outlet. And that a lot of times the families, you know, even folks that are not professional athletes are struggling with managing the anxiety and or depression and or annoyances and or frustration that came with COVID and living together and not leaving the house as often as they used to. I've enjoyed actually with COVID-19 of what it has brought. But then there's the other side of it that as I was speaking about George Floyd, a lot of black males started to call more seemingly because there was like a fear of their own mortality. And it was like a, it was like exacerbated by having to be at home and watching the news as often as one was from, you know, March to July or June to now, people are just home. Can you talk a little bit about your methods of self-care, your go-to methods of making sure that you can replenish your stores and making sure that you're okay psychologically and physically and emotionally so that you can do your job, which is to take care of other people and help them handle their lives? My first thought always when someone asks me about self-care is I think of crab legs. <laughs> it's crab so legs? I'm laughing because if I can make sure I have crab legs once a week, it's a good week. You know, it's just for me, I think there's something that I'm learning just as I, I think why I like to eat like edamame and just all of these kind of finger foods. Like number one, I think I like to touch food. So that does something for me. There's like some that soothes me something tactile. I guess that's for sure what that would be under. And then obviously the idea of good eating. And so for me, I'm like, oh, wow, I need to go get some crab legs. Sometimes I don't know what your audience is like, but the truth is I enjoy to have a nice glass of wine, obviously nothing excessive, but that's like the best to get a nice glass of Pinot Noir or Shiraz or a Cabernet with a nice steak. So I eat really well to say the least on purpose. I always say, I don't really spend money on clothes. I'm not really into that. I hate shopping. But the idea of I enjoy eating well and unapologetically get this second martini with my fettuccine Alfredo that I just enjoyed. And that is a good night. I enjoy having a nice dinner where I'm not just trying to finish eating or you know how we quickly cook to eat because we're hungry. Like I don't want that meal. That's not exciting. I either want to sit down and be served or I want to enjoy the cooking. I want there not to be any type of rush. And then I want to sit down and put my fork down. Hello. That's a whole nother type of eating that we sometimes forget that militant, you know, eating where it's like the mess hall. I have 10 minutes before the next place I have to be. And so I try my best to just enjoy my meal and not rushing it. So that's my number one thing, self-care. And the other thing is just working out. I think that's where I put most of my anger is on, on the pull-up bar or doing burpees, like stuff that's like, uh, you know, where you grunt because it's hurting. Like that's where I literally want it. I just want to release it right there at the gym or at home. But I definitely, it's definitely working out and eating well. 
All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Crab legs and pull-ups, it sounds like, are the, <laughs> the secrets to good self-care. That's interesting. Okay, you have to have your own thing. And so that's what you found. That's what you look forward to. And I like that. I like that idea of taking the time to eat and to put your fork down and really enjoying a meal. So can you talk about what was your journey into that kind of your routine or the things that you realize you like best? Was it sort of trial and error or what was it for you? Well, you know, getting older as a like a, you know, an athlete growing up, I've always known that I like to do things with my body. So I used to be like a ballerina. So I've always known I like to dance. But then when you get older and I'm saying older as in I'm about to be 40, but just the idea like I don't want to go to a club, you know, but I also don't really think I'm going to stop and take a dance class. So I have to do something for me was like pull ups and burpees. And it literally hurts every time. And I love the feeling every time. And so that was kind of how I got there. In terms of the food, of course, I've always enjoyed it. Seafood is definitely my love, but to actually take the time and, and stop and enjoy it in like a very slow motion way, that I didn't realize until, how could I say this? Until I had more time. And I'll tell you this, even cooking is something that I did more of in COVID during this pandemic since March, because I wasn't rushing. I genuinely do not enjoy coming home at eight o'clock having some 30 minute meal and then eating it from nine to nine 30. You know what I mean? And then, then I'm tired by 10. I might get one little, you know, primetime TV show in and it's just like, what? No. And so when I had more time to cook, I even, in, I like enjoyed it. I enjoyed the idea of, you know, let me change the seasoning or let me change up the ingredients or cook something I've never cooked before. And that might sound corny to people that, you know, work a lot or, cook all the time, but it wasn't something that I really enjoyed because it was just because I wanted to eat. And so, yeah, that came from having more time. And then I forgot to say about self-care, which sounds so simple, but I didn't know how to do this, was learning how to do nothing. I actually now, can I use the word schedule? That sounds so structured, but I make sure I do nothing on that Sunday. I try to take every Sunday off and I try to do nothing. Like I have this little cocoon kind of a chair in my backyard and I just sit there and do nothing. I don't talk on the phone because that's sometimes doing something when you think you're relaxing, but you're on the phone. And I've learned even that can be stressful depending on the conversation. So yeah, I turn off the phone or leave the phone in the house and just going to swing in my little cocoon and do nothing and see where my mind goes. Some people would see it as a form of meditation, but I'm not really that the greatest at meditation. I always need to do something to allow my mind to do nothing. And so, yeah, scheduling to do nothing has been something I do weekly, which I had never done before March. Yeah, that's great. And that actually sounds lovely. And it's interesting that you said, because that seems to be a recurring theme for several people that I've had on in terms of not realizing until COVID hit and we had to slow down or we had to stop just not realizing how great that was to not have all these things just like piled onto our plates, yep. but also not realizing how rewarding it can be to do less or to do absolutely nothing and how rejuvenating that can be. Yeah, it's kind of, it's sad. I'm actually going to use the word sad. I genuinely, and my mom knows I say this about her all the time. 
she's okay with me saying this out loud. I do not <laughs> want to be a workaholic. I've told her I don't want to be like you. I don't want to find validation at work. I enjoy it. I'm fulfilled, but like I'm not looking, you know, I'm not looking to feel great about myself to work one more hour at 7 p.m. because someone needs me. You know, that word, they, people need me. You know, it's like, please, you can tell whoever it is, I'll see you tomorrow. Learn the word no. Hello. I learned that a few years ago. There's a, a patient of mine that said her mother taught her that no is a complete sentence. And it is the best phrase I like to tell people. And I'm like, when you say no, you actually get your life back, that hour back or, you know, learning the word no. And yeah, just making sure that you're true to yourself, I guess. Right. And setting those boundaries. I think that especially as mental health professionals, we have to learn to do that because otherwise, I mean, there's always going to be another person that needs our help that would like another session that's going through some kind of crisis. Yeah, and right. Yeah, right. And although we want to help and we want to be there, I mean, that's why we got into this is to help other people. But knowing that at some point you have to establish those boundaries and say, you know what, I just, I cannot do this because otherwise we'll just keep going and going and going and there'll never be a break. Never. It's interesting because that, I think that too is a part of our culture, that idea that we have to work 24 seven, we have to always be working. And it's kind of a badge of honor, really, to, to oh, work yeah. ourselves into the ground and say, I'm so busy. Like I got two hours I'm of sleep so last busy. night. <laughs> I haven't eaten breakfast today. It's 11. I'm so great. Yeah. Right. Right. No. It's just like, no, that's you're actually killing yourself. And you're going to be replaceable once you die. I tell people that because, you know, my personality is a little raw. I was like, just know, like, at that job, when you die, guess what's going to happen? They're going to replace you. That You are going to be replaced probably in less than a week or two. That's what's so sad. And for you, you are giving your all, your left lung, you know, your right kidney, just to make sure that you hit that deadline, but you didn't spend time with your own children. Like, you don't get points for that. Sorry. Right. And trying to, to make a difference at the expense of your own health. Oh, my gosh. That's a good one. That's a book right there, Dr. Marcia. What is? Trying to make a difference at the expense of yourself. Oh, my gosh. That would be the title. Like that, what you just said is burnout. Because most times Absolutely. you're doing it because you want it to until it catches up to you in the hospital. Yeah, you're right. right. You're usually doing what you're wanting to do. Dang, at the detriment of yourself. That's deep. So is there anything that's really challenging for you in terms of your self-care that you find over and over again that you're constantly having to sort of work at because it's just, it's been really, you know, difficult? Probably, definitely working those Saturdays when I hear on the phone that they quote unquote need me, you know, that's the God complex that you we have to all let go of that they need me. And I literally was sometimes I'm like, no, I don't need to. But then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my only opening, which is Saturday at two o'clock. But I had the boundary of not working past two. So I'm like, oh, do you want to come in at two? And they're like, yes, thank you so much. So keeping the boundary is the challenge. I've gotten a lot better at it, but where I don't work too much, because in my mind, sometimes I say, oh, I can just add another hour. It's just another hour, you know, it's just another hour. But then the hour becomes, you know, now I'm working eight hours or 12 hours when I only wanted to work six on a weekend. What's another challenge in terms of to make sure that I'm OK? Well, before it was the month of May. No joke. I think I had a podcast three or four times a week. So I it was saying yes. But like I told you, I'm getting better. Oh, wow. at but I literally I just thought every opportunity was such a great opportunity. I'm like. 
oh, I would love to work with, you know, every time someone calls, it's like, oh my gosh, I just, I would love to work with it. Whatever the population was, it was like this new love or this new passion. And I literally said yes. The whole month of May, I think each week I had these virtual Zooms or audio podcasts like three or four times a week. And I became exhausted because a lot of times for a podcast, they're at in the evening hours after you did your job. And so I was then not sleeping like my eight hours like I need. And so saying no, I struggle with it once I realize it's something that I want to do because I just want to do it. I think it's amazing. And that you can eventually get more patience when you're on another panel discussion of a church or just being happy that a church calls because, you know, as they, some people say you need Jesus and the therapist, you know? <laughs> yes. The minute they call, I'm like, yes, I love that this pastor understands that we need to pray and we may need to talk to a professional. And it's just like, of course, my answer is always yes. So that's me always agreeing to do too many appearances and forgetting that I need to do nothing on purpose. So that's my biggest challenge. Well, thank you. This has been so interesting and so informative and so helpful. All of the information and the tips. So thank you for you know sitting down and taking the time out to chat with me. Oh, thank you for the platform. Yes, my pleasure. So now at the end, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of the episodes. I'd like to ask a question that has nothing to do with self-care. And so that's a question that's just random. I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Oh, this is dangerous for your audience. I'm ready. Because <laughs> I'm going to say it. No, I love okay. it. This is great. All right. So here is the situation. It's a hypothetical. So the zombie apocalypse is upon us. Do you know what the zombie apocalypse is? I've heard of this idea. Do you want to expand on it? The, well, the idea of just how the end of the world, you're saying, will come. Yes. So it's the idea, if you've seen any of the movies, basically something happens. There's some kind of contagion or people get some kind of virus and then they die and they come back as the undead. They come back as zombies and then they go around basically trying to eat people. It's a theme that's as old as time, I think, or as old as George Romero. But Oh, interesting. Yes. And I never watched those movies. So you, everybody gets the whatever the it is and then you then turn on your own. Yes. So it depends on the zombie world that you're being introduced to. Okay. It depends on the TV show or the movie. There are slightly different rules for the universe, depending on what universe it is, which zombies they are. So generally what happens, though, is there's some kind of virus. There's some kind of infection. There's some kind of contagion that hits humanity and then people start to die, but they don't really die. They come back to life as zombies and they wander the streets and they try to eat the humans that don't have the virus. It becomes about the survivors determining how they're going to survive. And so usually they decide on one of three things. So for you, if you're in that situation, which thing do you seek first, food, shelter, or weapons and why? Okay. So the crazy thing is that my first thought was weapons. However, in my real life, I'm not violent at all. But in my mind, I guess I am. That's what. That's how I'm <laughs> in this moment. And so I have always, even in my dreams, I always want to fight the bad guy, but I want to like fight them. But I have never gotten into a physical fight in my entire life. Verbally, yes, but never a physical fight. Yeah, it's crazy. I would want to find a weapon. And it's interesting because I don't just want to hit them. I want to kill them in this hypothetical moment that we're having right now. So yeah, I would <laughs> want to find a weapon and I wouldn't just want to hit them across the head like to get away or shoo them away. I would actually want to kill them because I don't like the bad guy. 
You know, I don't, I don't like that you're going to give me something or you're going to take me. I guess that's the whole point. You're going to take me with you. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And I like that. And I like the idea that you addressed of not just hitting him in the head to get away. That drives me nuts in any kind of like horror film where they just oh, hit know, them in right? the head. And you're like, this person is clearly not dead. What are you doing? Like, Yes. If you're gonna do it, you got to fully commit. Do it right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk a little bit about, because you said you have a lot of stuff coming up. So talk about your projects, like anything that's coming up. If you want to talk about your practice, go right ahead. Sure. Okay. So the name of my practice is called Drive-By Therapy. And my website is drivebytherapy.org. And I wrote a book with a colleague of mine named Dr. Deborah. And we both, the book is called It Ain't the Dishes. And so it's kind of like the way that I'm kind of thinking about it, even when you see the book, the way it looks, and it's not too long. It's kind of like a workbook for couples. And so the title was called It Ain't the Dishes, but there's chapters. The chapters are like, it ain't the trash. It ain't the laundry. It ain't the toilet seat. It ain't the hair on the soap. It ain't the mother-in-law, you know? And so the idea is, we argue in our relationships, most times in our romantic relationships. However, this book can be applied to any relationship, but we argue about certain things like the dishes. But you and I, you know this, Dr. Marcia, you and I both know that when working with couples, they're coming in the office or they're sitting on the couch talking about the dishes, but we both know they're arguing about more than the dishes. And so that's the whole premise of the book. And it's like, what are you really arguing about? If you cooked and now you're having to do the dishes and all your spouse did or partner did was to put the fork in the dishwater, in this moment, that pissed you off. Because now you feel like they didn't consider your feelings or your time. And so when we say, you know, don't argue about the dishes, but really say out loud what it is that you're bothered by. And the truth is that I don't feel considered or I would like you to have more compassion or be more sensitive in this way. And so, yeah, it's uh, kind of cool. I, I just finished that book just a couple of days ago. I just had a book signing. And so that's what's coming up. So anyone that's interested, even if you actually have like a group of friends and you want to get a group of couples, a couple of your couple friends around, we can even do a virtual kind of couples workshop in that way where there's multiple couples in a room and we all get the book and we kind of work through it. And literally after each chapter, there's homework. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. I love that. I love that because that is so true. You know, a lot of times when you're working with people, they're upset about something or arguing about something, but it's really not that thing that's the problem or that is really the source. And I love that that's addressed and you just hit it head on to tell them, listen, it's it's not about this. Let's stop. Stop this. Stop there. Yeah. And let's talk about what it is. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Tasha, so much for being here and for chatting with me. Thank you so much and take care. Thank you and congratulations on the podcast. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for the Self-Care Chronicle. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to someone else who might enjoy it. To find out more about today's episode or listen to additional episodes, visit drmarshabrown.com and click on Deconstructing Stress. That's D-R-M-A-R-S-H-A-B-R-O-W-N.com and click on Deconstructing Stress. See you next time.